Hello and welcome to this episode in Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast series on procurement. For those of you who are new to this series, my name's Nusrat Zar and I'm a partner in the London Public Law team. And my name's Rachel Lidgate and I'm a partner in the Disputes team. Today, Rachel and I are going to be looking at the remedies available to a claimant challenging a procurement award under the Procurement Contracts Regulations 2015 or the Utilities Contracts Regulations 2016. And we'll be looking at remedies from the perspective of both a prospective claimant and a prospective defendant. So, assuming a case makes it to trial and the court finds in favour of the claimant, what sort of remedies might the court provide for? Thanks, Nusrat. Well, that will really depend on whether the remedy is being ordered before or after the contract in question has been entered into. I should note that the introduction of the automatic suspension discussed in the last podcast uh, means that an application for injunctive relief to prevent the contract being entered into is no longer needed as it was before these particular regulations came in. So pre-contract remedies are set out under the regulations and in particular where a court is satisfied that a decision or action taken by an authority was in breach of the duty owed, it can either make an order setting aside the decision or the action concerned and or it can order the authority to amend any document and or award damages to a claimant which has suffered loss or damage as a consequence of the breach. Where the court is satisfied that the claimant would have had a real chance of being awarded the contract if that chance hadn't been affected by the breach, then the claimant is entitled to damages amounting to its costs in preparing the tender and in participating in the procedure leading to the award of the contract. If an automatic suspension has been maintained, then the court will decide whether damages or setting aside the award decision is the most appropriate remedy. And a case from 2011 called Mears Limited and Leeds City Council sets out the relevant considerations here. And that includes factors such as the time that would be taken to retender the services, the absence of any interim contract pending any retender, the possibility that an interim contract could be challenged on procurement grounds, and also whether damages would be an adequate remedy for the claimant. So I'm going to turn now to remedies which are available after a contract has been entered into. And as with pre-contract remedies, damages are available if the claimant has suffered loss or damage as a consequence of the breach, regardless of what other remedies might be available. The award of damages depends to a large extent on whether the evidence indicates that the claimant would actually have been awarded the contract in the absence of the breach, or merely whether it has lost the opportunity to participate in the bid process in a fair and transparent manner. It's worth mentioning that the Supreme Court in 2017 confirmed that the three so-called Frankovich conditions for damages applicable to violations of EU law were applicable to breaches of the EU Remedies Directive. I'm not going to go into that point in very much detail for now, but one of the key conditions, and the one that we see come up most often, is that to qualify for an award of damages, the breach of the directive must be considered to be sufficiently serious. An alternative remedy is a declaration of ineffectiveness. If the contract has already been entered into and the court is satisfied that a decision or action taken by a contracting authority was in breach of the procurement regulations, then it must, if it's satisfied that any of the grounds for ineffectiveness apply, make what's called a declaration of ineffectiveness in respect of the contract. 
And there are three types of situations in which this remedy is generally awarded. First, where the contracting authority has directly awarded a contract without placing an ojud advertisement, despite being required to do so. Secondly, where a call-off contract under a framework agreement for goods or services with a value over the procurement threshold has been entered into without following the relevant call-off procedures under that framework. And thirdly, where a standstill period has been breached and such a breach denies the supplier an opportunity to challenge the contract award. So in the case of Faraday Development Limited and West Berkshire Council, which is a relatively recent case from 2018, the Court of Appeal did issue a declaration of ineffectiveness and it was allowing an appeal against the first instance decision. So that challenge concerned a development agreement for a parcel of land owned by the respondent council, which had been entered into outside the framework of the public contracts regulations. The council had issued a voluntary ex-anti-transparency notice, which we can all be glad to know is usually referred to as a VEAT notice, stating that it believed that the agreement was outside the procurement regime. So as a reminder, VEAT notices are published by contracting authorities in the official journal of the EU when it considers that a full contracting process under the procurement regulations is not required. So VEAT notices are one way in which contracting authorities can try to mitigate the risk of a procurement challenge as they trigger a 10-day window for any bidder to launch a challenge. In theory, if there is a later challenge to the procurement process, the fact that a VEAT notice was issued and not challenged can be a defence against a declaration of ineffectiveness. In the Faraday decision, however, the court found that the agreement, when taken as a whole, committed the council to the procurement of works from the developer and it therefore fell within the scope of the procurement regulations regime and as such a declaration of ineffectiveness was warranted. The court found that the council's veto notice did not preclude a declaration of effectiveness uh, because the notice was incorrect and it did not give an adequate justification for the council's decision to proceed as it did outside the procurement regulations. In general, this Faraday decision does demonstrate that VEAT notices aren't in any way foolproof. An invalid VEAT notice, for instance, where the notice doesn't provide sufficient information, really provides little or no protection for the contracting authority, and so can, where a contract is entered into, actually expose an authority to the risk of a declaration of ineffectiveness. So, use and preparation of a VEAT notice do require careful consideration of the risks and circumstances, and it's worth noting in this context that the standard form for such a notice actually has a word limit of around 500 words for the authority to set out its justification, so query whether a VEAT notice can ever be truly foolproof. There's also a second type of notice to mention called a contract award notice or CAN which triggers a 30-day window for challenges and could therefore also be used to mitigate the risk of a successful later challenge but this also suffers from similar issues as the beat notice. I should just mention uh, what the consequences of a declaration for ineffectiveness are which can be dealt with quite quickly in that the regulations say that where a declaration of ineffectiveness is made, the contract is considered to be prospectively, but not retrospectively, ineffective, as from the time when the declaration is made. So accordingly, uh, those obligations under the contract, which at that time 
have yet to be performed are not to be performed, uh, but there is no retrospective effect. Where a declaration of ineffectiveness is made, the court must also order the utility to pay a fine, or what's known in legislation as a civil financial penalty. The court may also impose a financial penalty and or require the duration of the contract to be shortened, where it decided not to grant a declaration because a derogation applied, or where it satisfied there was a breach of the standstill or suspension obligation, but it didn't make a declaration because it wasn't sought or the grounds weren't made out. The courts are also entitled to shorten the term of a contract where they think that's appropriate. And before the procurement regulations came into being, once a contract was executed, damages were the only remedy available to aggrieved bidders. In terms of assessing the level of the civil financial penalty, the court's overriding consideration is that penalties must be effective, proportionate and dissuasive. The court must take account of all relevant factors, including the seriousness of the relevant breach of duty, the behaviour of the contracting authority, and the extent to which the contract remains in force if it's shortened. So given that overriding consideration that Nusrat mentions, it was somewhat surprising to see that the civil financial penalty in the Faraday case was just a nominal £1. It's been suggested by some commentators that the nominal fine is probably a recognition of the fact that the authority acted in good faith and at least did attempt to issue a VEAT notice even if it wasn't effective. Furthermore, the claimant in that case uh, hadn't taken any view or made any submissions as to the size of the penalty. So I don't think we can assume that the Faraday case will have any bearing on any future financial penalties that might be issued in other cases. Thanks very much, Rachel. That concludes this podcast. And thanks very much to you all for taking the time to listen to it.